Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our lives and our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and then together we interview a special guest about their work in and around design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about end-of-life service design. I'll be joined by Lisa DeBettencourt, founder and principal at Forge Harmonic, an innovation and strategic design firm that works with digital health and life science companies. And later on, we'll chat with Megan Yip, an attorney at the law office of Megan Yip, where she drafts estate plans and assists with the post-death trust administration. Together, we will all learn how design can improve the difficult decisions family members and loved ones have to make after a death. Before we dive in, I just wanted to ask, we're getting towards the end of the year here and Design Museum could always use your support. So if you're thinking about organizations that you wanna support with end of year giving, please consider Design Museum Everywhere. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. You're listening to this podcast and your support would support us continuing to develop great conversations on this show. So if you're interested in giving an end of year gift, no matter what the size, go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on support. And with that, onto this week's topic, end of life service design. On the show, we often talk about the way design can improve our lives in a myriad of ways, but what does it look like when design can help us make the difficult decisions after a loved one has passed away? I am joined by my guest co-host this week, Lisa DeBettencourt. Lisa is a product strategy and design leader. As the founder of Forge Harmonic, a strategic design studio, Lisa works with healthcare and life sciences organizations to develop innovative ways to provide unique value to customers and users and stakeholders amidst increasing regulations, consumer expectations, and technological complexity. Prior to Forge Harmonic, Lisa was VP of Design at Confer Health, a biotech startup building the first ever clinical grade diagnostic testing for use at home. She also built and grew the UX design team at Improvada, a healthcare IT security company. Lisa has led the design solutions for customers of Bose, Autodesk, Walgreens, Harvard Medical School, and Partners Healthcare. And now Lisa's on our council here at Design Museum. So thank you for that, Lisa. She also developed and taught the curriculum for the course entitled Information Technology and the Creative Practice for the MS in Digital Media Program at the College of Professional Studies at Northeastern University. Lisa's designs unravel complex problems. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm super psyched to be here. Yeah, it's nice to see you. So let's dive in. I, I want to learn more about Forge Harmonic. You're innovating healthcare through design. It struck me, and I've always loved that Harmony or Harmonic is in your name. So can you tell me about the name Forge Harmonic? Oh, yeah, I would love to. Well, you know, I really wanted to capture this idea that the work that we do in design, but specifically, you know, for healthcare is that it's just all about bringing together so many disparate pieces and trying to bring them into alignment. It's about bringing them together so that they all work together. And it's kind of twofold. And more recently, I've been even realizing that it's not just about taking all these different pieces that we learn about in the market and in our patients and their caregivers and the things that they need and also the technology and whatnot, but it's also shaping the products so that people are in harmony or in alignment with the things that they use and the services they use so that everything's just easier and more streamlined and you don't have to think and you don't have to 
put so much effort into things. And so that's sort of the goal. And the forge part is this stuff takes work. You got to make something and you got to put in a lot of effort and blood, sweat and tears to make things actually come into alignment. Could you share an example of a time when design has improved the healthcare experience? Wow, that's a great question. I can answer that question from the inside out because my experience with the healthcare system as a patient has not been awesome, but also that's the patient experience. And so I've spent more time working on the provider experience and also kind of a lot of the back office bits and making sure that the way that care is delivered has been streamlined. You know, one of my favorite examples is when we were at Improvada and we were designing a lot of these biometrics that make the access to information way more streamlined. There's so many minor, minor details, these tiny, millions of tiny little decisions that go into making, well, as you know, a physical product work in a digital, in, connected to a digital system. And also, you know, just the ergonomics of the physical pieces. I mean, you're talking about biometrics. So there's a lot of security concerns that are involved. How are people going to accept that they're being, you know, recognized by parts of their body, whether it's a, a vein pattern in their hand or it's a thumbprint or it's even, you know, a retinal scan or whatever. So there's nothing like seeing the happiness or like a positive emotion from a really, really frustrated physician who's just... You know, there's passwords on post-it notes all over the place, and they're just so frustrated with being not being able to get into their systems to be able to get access to information and having them use a product that's like, boom, it just gets in. And that's a testament to the incredible technology that's there, but also all the thought that goes into those tiny, tiny little details to making sure that the experience is really tight. Let's get into end-of-life service, end-of-life experience. I want to know... How did you start getting involved with this, thinking about it, thinking about how it can be improved? Yeah, so it's interesting that we're recording this now because it, it we're, I'm just coming off of the two-year anniversary of my mother's death, which is kind of the trigger for all of this work. Mm. So she you know, was really sick for a long time, and in her kind of final months, she started to hand off a lot of the responsibilities that she had for managing my parents' household to me. She gave me the logins to her bank accounts. She's like, this bank account covers, you know, utilities and such and such. This one is for the mortgage, this one. And so I started to get to learn the way that she ran the house, her systems. I only got exposed to what she shared with me to kind of keep things running. But then after she passed, all of a sudden I had visibility into everything. I had access to everything. So I basically had to do, you know, like archaeology, you know, in my in my parents, uh, in my mom's office to try to really uncover and understand what did she have? Uh, what state was it in? Who, what was who was owed what money? Um, how do we close out accounts? What accounts do we need to, to worry about immediately? And what things did we did we have some time to sort of manage and and the whole experience doing that was really frustrating. I mean, I think I spent six months at my parents' house every weekend, just going, rifling through all of her, and thank God she kept fantastic records, but rifling through all of her files and folders. And I found a $6,500 end of life death benefit to pay for her funeral. I was like, hey, dad, did you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he was like, sweet, good timing, because we were literally just wrapping things up at the funeral home, you know? Um, and so those kinds of things, you just, you just, you just don't know. And, and some of the experiences were 
fine and smooth and, and, you know, calling a company and being like, Hey, you know, this happened. My mother passed away. We need to deal with it. You know, Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Here's the process that we have and put, you know, here's what we're going to do. You'll get a letter. This is what happens. And then you go on and others took more than a year and hours on the phone and back and forth with letters and, and just like, unending frustration, trying to get things either transferred to my dad's name or just shut down or, you know, dealt with in some way. Were there any very well-designed end-of-life experiences where you're like, wow, this company really has thought through how this works? I had a great experience with, interestingly enough, Toyota. So my mom had a, like, I think a year left on, on a new car. And so I called them up and it just, that was soup. And the woman was so nice. It's like, these people have done this before. And it kind of makes sense because it's a physical asset. And if, if they don't make it go smoothly, then maybe, you know, whoever is left over wouldn't pay the balance and then what happens and it gets messy. And so it's in their own best interest to make it a, a seamless, smooth experience. So they were great. What advice do you have or, you know, processes and improvements that, can be designed that, that you're kind of putting out there in the world. Yeah. So I'm starting, I started putting a framework together to, you know, eventually as I, as I start to, you know, maybe do something with this to be able to advise folks on, on it. And what I realized was that this work, it's not just like a designer in sketch or whatever, right? It's not that level of design. It's very strategic design. It's leadership level kind of design. And so, you know, if it's design led, because maybe that's the person in the organization that's sort of driving the initiative and the idea, they really have to work closely with the C-suite and the leadership team to make sure that that all of the moving parts are working together across the board. So including and especially general counsel, when we start talking about that stuff, when Megan joins, it'll become really clear, but there's so many tricky legal pieces that you have to navigate. And, you know, we're obviously not, (laughs) you know, informed, equipped, or educated enough to be able to do that sort of thing. But, you know, having, having the leadership team on board and, and having them coordinate all the touch points. So figuring out how, what are, what are the policies that you want to put in place? So how do you want to actually handle a situation where, you know, you have a customer that passes away? What are the kinds of things that you want to, that you want to do for them? Do you want to do something for their family? Or do you just want to like keep it by the book and just shut everything down and kind of move on or any of the levels of gray in between? So you have to start with policy and really deciding on what you want to do and how does that align with your corporate values? That's the first thing. That's first and foremost. And then the next layer down is identifying all the touch points across the organization where that has to get implemented. So whether it's something that's in your policy online and your website or customer service, if there's scripts that have to be written and training that has to be done, you know, online guidance on your website or whatever that has to be created, crafted, built, information needs to go out and distributed. So you know, what are those touch points? And then what are the things that you need to do to to make sure that those touch points are created and designed effectively? And then just lots of training and, infor- and internal information and make sure the company knows that this is a new policy. This is how it's going to be handled. These are all the places where you can engage with it and letting people know. Yeah, that sounds like start of a great framework. This is awesome. And it's hard work, uh, but it's really needed. So I really appreciate you being here to talk about it. Yeah, thanks. Listeners, to see more of Lisa's work, visit forgeharmonic.com. 
And Lisa, stick around, and we'll bring Megan Yip into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back. We're joined by our special guest, Megan Yip, an attorney of her own practice, the Law Office of Megan Yip, where she helps families plan for the future, face legal challenges of death today, and gain clarity and peace of mind when it comes to life's toughest questions. Megan served as an advisory board member of the Sacred Dying Foundation. She went to law school to help people navigate the systems that govern our lives. Her work with the Borchard Foundation Center on Law and Aging and the Legal Aid of Marin have guided her to develop a practice that addresses the real needs of people facing hard questions. Megan's designs not only walk her clients through their current challenges, but serve as an ongoing guide. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. To start, I'd love to learn more about how you got interested in this field and sort of this field of law and this work. Well, I actually wrote my first will in law school, and I was part of an elder law clinic at my law school, Cardozo School of Law in New York. And, you know, and then people asked me how I was drawn to that. And it was great practical experience. We got to go to court. We had a lot of work that we could do that was just hands-on. We actually worked with clients, which was really exciting to the way I learn as a person in law school. But before that, I spent a lot of time in my youth with my great-grandmother, actually. And I think that there was maybe just not a fear of older adults. There was just a genuine curiosity and love for older adults throughout my life. And um, so when I got to law school and there was this thing to help older adults, it was a natural segue. It was like, oh, cool. I get to do hands-on learning, not just in the books, but also get to help folks like my beloved great-grandmother, who was a big person in my life. So that's how I got into it. And it just stuck. I enjoyed it. Throughout my first couple of years at Legal Aid of Marin, I did, in addition to elder law and helping with consumer needs of the elderly, I did a lot of housing law. And I found that I preferred some of the end of life work to housing work because you didn't have any of those situations or you had fewer of those situations where people got themselves into their own trouble. I don't want to say that people always get evicted or always have housing trouble because of their own behavior. That's unfair. I mean, especially in times like we're having now as a society. However, you did on occasion have those clients that made poor decisions and then wanted you to bail them out. Whereas end of life is something we all face. Growing old is something we all face. Planning for worst case scenarios is it's something, I don't know, just something more human um, as opposed to bailing people out, which is a lot of law, is bailing people out of bad decisions. So I think that's one piece of it that I really like. Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. I wonder if you could 
share from your perspective and expertise, like what are some of the legal challenges around death? I think just avoiding it is what creates the legal challenges because I actually like to say, and maybe I'm biased because I work in it, I think our probate system and our trust system and all of the transferring assets at death, we actually have a pretty elegant system. You know, we actually have a way to use it that has been in use for many years legally. And yes, we have hiccups and things that aren't quite right or take too much time. But if you get your documentation done, if you do the hard work at the beginning of making some of these decisions and talking to your family and working on it, you can avoid a lot of problems. That being said, I mean, just to throw one out there that might seem silly, names are a really hard thing. A lot of times people own or have things titled in the name and then their family requests a death certificate with a different last name or a different middle initial, or they leave out the middle name where that was used on all of the titling and financial things. So that's a silly thing that can cause a lot of difficulty or annoyance for my paralegal and I just sorting out names. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, then people can get emotional. I didn't know my mom was going by that name. Why does her deed still have that ex-husband she hated? Why is she still using his name? And then all of that's brought into the law office. So I think all the human things are brought into it and whether they cause legal problems or just more paperwork is uninteresting as it is, people's failure to plan or anticipate their death is the biggest legal problem. Megan, you talked about sort of like prepping and kind of being ready, but these are tough conversations, right? And people don't like talking about death. Like, do you have strategies for helping sort of folks navigate these conversations? And I would add to that question and ask, what, what are the key events that typically bring people into your office? Uh, Let's start with that one. Lisa's is easier. (laughs) What are the key events? Um, Often for younger families, it's having a kiddo. So first child, you know, adopting or um, birthing their first child that can cause someone because I think that's the sense of responsibility coming in. Sometimes it's a big financial event. So um, I'm in the Bay Area. So near Silicon Valley, you get a bunch of stock options. Your company goes public. You've been head down and now you have some um, actual value. And that might make you nervous. Or again, you have a sense of responsibility for planning ahead for that. At middle age, it can be a life event with your own parents or auntie or uncle or someone that you had to walk through it with. Later in life, it's a lot of those events. You know, someone close to you just passed away or ended up in the hospital unexpectedly. Those are the things that tend to trigger it. And, you know, on occasion, it's something that you see in the news. I mean, throughout COVID, it's been interesting. Some people, it makes them really excited about it. You need to talk about and process it, but maybe not enough to take action. And so people in my line of work, we've heard the phone ringing a lot but not a lot of people able to step into the process and want to hire us. You know, they want to call and talk about it and shop and all of this. So that's not like enough to motivate and get people all the way in. Um, How I encourage people to talk about it. It's very interesting. You know, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a counselor or a therapist for your family, Um, but I do always um, suggest to 
take the time with the conversation. I always suggest having dinner, you know, making the family's favorite dessert, their favorite meal. If you, you know, like to open a bottle of something with your partner, you know, I mean, you need to, you need to make it comfortable. You know, you need to be gentle with it. I mean, admitting it's tough, I think is the biggest thing. And, um, I think that's where I might be a little bit different than other lawyers. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I don't always put people on like a really tight timeline. I'm not like, this is our next meeting. And this is when we're going to do that. I have pushed people through the estate planning process before, and then it will all fall apart at the signing because they're like, I can't sign these documents. We haven't really talked about you know, what this document says and what are the repercussions. So I always tell people, you know, here's what, you know, I give them a work booklet of what they need to, you know, review with their partner or other family member or close friend, whoever's in their life. And, um, you know, I say, talk through the whole booklet. It might not all apply to you. Um, take your time, get some good answers to those decisions on your own. But I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately because that's the work I can't do for the people. And I've been thinking that there aren't actually a lot of materials that help families walk through the planning part that's maybe more of the you know, the family conversation or the therapist's realm of how do we face all of these feelings and things going on here, these, you know, whatever the hurdles are, you know, maybe their assumptions in their family or cultural um, things going on. Like I said, um, in the whole death academy, fear of death is just like very boring. Like, let's not even address that. <laughs> you know, they just, you know, they don't <laughs> want that. And, you know, it's already been done. But I think it's just really, it's there. It's part of all of this. So I would like to see there be more resources. And like I said, being a lawyer, it's not really my place or my expertise, but I'd love to see more resources to help people through those conversations other than here are the questions I need you to be able to answer during your legal consultation. When you're doing this end of life planning or you're doing these legal documents, it's very common to talk about physical assets, your house, your car, your, you know, these kinds of things, who's going to get what money, who's going to do whatever. And kind of how you and I got connected was also on the digital asset side and, you know, having people think through uh, and worry about the, you know, their sort of digital afterlife, you know, what do you do with that stuff? How, and that feels like, it feels like confetti or like glitter. It's just like everywhere versus I have a house and I'm in it and I can see it and touch it. And, you know, how are, how are you thinking about, you know, digital assets? I know you have some experience on the corporate side as well, you know, and that's sort of where, where I come from, but like, how are you thinking about or, or encouraging or coaching your um, clients to think about the digital assets that they need to worry about? That's a very good question. I think you're right. It does feel like confetti and it's everywhere. And I think I, I take it a little bit differently, but I don't offer right now a one-size-fits-all solution for digital assets. In the Bay Area, we have a lot of people who are very savvy and have um, you know, their whole business portfolio otherwise online. And so you would talk to them about worst-case scenario planning for their digital assets very differently than someone who's a novice, who has a different level of digital literacy, who has a different digital footprint and primarily uses um, the internet or cloud storage for family photos and communicating with loved ones. 
Um, and so I don't see a one size fits all solution. We are going to need something that helps people think about it in the same way. And that's, that's really what's difficult. The two things that I think that are interesting in that conversation is what I mentioned before, someone's digital literacy. How much do they understand what's going on? You know, there's someone who has, you know, their livelihood in the cloud, in the internet, based on intellectual property, they have a very different set of questions and I can advise them very differently about worst case scenario planning for their digital assets. And I think that it's important to mention that it's not always a legal solution. You know, I often look for the marriage of a legal solution and a technology solution to worst case scenario planning for digital assets. And so the conversation with the very digital literate is a place I can be very helpful. And it's a very traditional attorney consultation to the person who's not very digitally literate. And I like to explain digital literacy like financial literacy in the same breath or, you know, we think of a continuum. You know, I just explained the very digitally literate. What does a digitally illiterate person look like? When we think of what digital implies, that's technology. And is that person using their technology or their digital footprint to make their life easier? And we think about the people we talk to in our life. Some of us do, some of us don't, some of us are a mixed bag. But if you are not using your technology or relying on it in a way to make your life better in terms of months or years, do you need a digital death plan is my question. You know, if you're resetting your passwords week after week, month after month, then even the solution that some people provide and, you know, has become very popular of a password manager. Well, if you're constantly changing those passwords or living out of a notebook, then you probably don't have the digital dependence or digital literacy to need a digital death plan. Like the idea of someone who's less financially literate, we do think that everyone needs an estate plan for their tangible or financial assets. But the person who's maybe new to the job market, who's living paycheck to paycheck, who's financially dependent on um, someone else, thinking of a young teen or a young adult, they are less needing of an estate plan than someone who has a house and a car and a 401k. And so I'm kind of looking at that same continuum. So that's the first thing I think about. The second thing I think about is understanding of privacy and assumptions of privacy. And every person sees that differently. So before I advise someone on a legal solution or a technology solution, I have to know what are their assumptions or hopes for privacy for any of these assets that we're wanting to have something happen in a worst case scenario. Is your assumption that you're using these digital products to keep things private and confidential? Or are you using the internet for fame and for marketing and then the caveat there, if you are using it for marketing, who should control that post-death or in a worst-case scenario? So that's unpacking a lot, but those are the two themes that I think about as I'm advising or thinking of a workflow for people to look at their digital life, their confetti, and where it's spread around, trying to gather it and then sort it. And then for companies that are dealing with digital assets, what advice or recommendation would you have for them for how they should be also thinking about these situations when it comes to privacy or giving control um, to people of their stuff before they pass on? 
Um, that's harder. You know, I mean, there are laws that affect these companies' decisions from a design or a customer experience. Um, I think that, again, because society is all over the place, it's hard to push on a company or um, someone who's building a new technology that it's necessary or that there's an expectation of building for death. Um, and I think something you and I, Lisa, talked about previously was a lot of companies don't have the long-term mindset. You know, when we talk about designing for death, we talk about what are we talking about for those of us sitting on this podcast? We hope, you know, we're talking about 20, 30, 40 years, um, you know, and maybe we <laughs> yes. are thinking differently in the middle of pandemic, but if you're planning for death, how long do we really think this new technology, this technology company is planning for? It's, you know, when we look at designing for death historically, we're thinking about stone, you know, we're thinking about paper <laughs> and really stone and paper are technologies that have easily that 20, 30, you know, a full generation length period of time. It's kind of... Uh, an annoying thing, but sometimes when you have someone developing and planning for death, um, a technology to support families in death, you do have to ask them, you know, well, first of all, what's your, what's your plan for being around for the next generation? Yeah, no, that's a great point because when you think about houses, you know, it's like grandma's going to pass the house down to the kids that are going to get passed down to those kids and the, you know, it's so on and so forth. Do you think about that for your Twitter account? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but haven't there been some interesting, interesting to the outsiders, but horrifying if you're an insider, but like where someone took over a dead person's account and caused some real trauma for others to be like, how is this? How is this person tweeting? Or the other example I've seen is, you know, Facebook memories when yes. like here you are grieving and then you're getting these posts from, you know, whether it's a, a, a dead spouse or or a family member and you're, it again, brings on trauma. It's, a, I just wonder if there's this link between like, we, we don't like talking about death. We don't like planning for it. And then these companies, particular social media who are like not even thinking about these scenarios. Right. Right. Usually there's someone thinking about it. Um, it's usually not a very big portion of the company who's thinking about it. Um, but yeah, shout out to the policy, the trust and safety people who are thinking about death in these companies. Um, but yeah, they're not the majority. And, um, you know, it doesn't help the bottom line unless there's, you know, a defensive stance against some of those really unfortunate situations that hit the news, shall we say. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, Sam, to your point, you know, coming off of my mother, you know, like the two year anniversary of her death. Uh, lots of Facebook, you know, reminders and people posting, oh, you know, showing old pictures. Yeah. Old pictures of them, her friends together. And it's like, oh yeah, I got to convert her account to a, you know, in memorial account because there's some real, there's some real impact there if things aren't, if things aren't thought through and taken care of appropriately up front. Yeah. And I think, you know, the social aspects of grief are just, they're just hard. You know, I think that's something that's difficult. And then, you know, what are these platforms really intending to do? I don't know that any of them started out um, wanting to be a place to support social grieving practices. You know, it happened and they've all dealt with it differently. 
But, um, you know, I don't think the founders or the executives or the people who are coming up with the product roadmap and how they want to develop and be a part of people's lives, I don't think it shows up there very often. Yeah, definitely not in the like the more general consumer space. I know for in for me in the healthcare space, it's more of a common topic, you know, especially when you're dealing with products and services for chronic disease and chronic conditions, comorbidities. There is more of a likelihood that you're going to have conversations around that um, fertility and and those kinds of things. That's a that's a common. It's a not uncommon theme um, to have those kinds of conversations. But that's such a small pocket, right, compared to the day to day stuff that we engage with. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. This would go to both of you, and I'm just curious. You know, this is a design podcast, so sometimes I like to. This seems a little strange to dream about improving end of life and death, but you know, where do you see the big improvements that could be made from a design standpoint for people's experience when it comes to sort of call it you know post death administration? I think you know, like there's some easy low hanging fruit. I would love to see consensus around the words we use for post-death and transfers post-death. You know, I'm not even going to say we have to use the legal words, fiduciary, trustee, executor. I'm fine if we don't use those. Um, But I really don't love that the technology companies and some of the service providers, especially online and digitally, don't use any of those terms. And so like lawyers cannot find the appropriate policy. Um, And I don't know if it's intentional, but it feels intentional. I would love to see just some using of language, um, some glossaries (laughs) among the different folks and designing around that. Um, I love the trauma-informed that Lisa talked about. We kind of talk about how we make space for grieving people and are extra patient with them in our office. Um, But I think there's a lot we could use there as well for grieving folks. We have kind of a few tools and then, you know, just supporting each other when people are maybe not themselves or not making sense or making more errors than they would normally make, knowing that they're trying to do something really hard in a grief state. So I love what Lisa said about the trauma-informed design. And then, like I said, I would, I would like more support or materials or maybe online modules that are educating about getting through the hard stuff so you can get a worst case scenario plan in place. That's something I'm really passionate about designing and making sure it's accessible and meets people where they're at. Yeah. So on the, on the flip side of that, so I think a lot of the burden, you know, rests on individuals to, you know, make their plan. And, but there's another responsibility, which is kind of with the angle that I've been coming at, which is the responsibility of these corporations to actually have, have services in place and have policies in place that are empathetic that are caring and supportive for the families that are grieving and the training in place for them to deliver those services and to close out people's accounts and not just be like, well, I deleted, we deleted everything and you're on, you know, we're done. We're, we're no longer going to deal with you anymore. So, and I feel like, um, raising awareness with the, you know, larger companies, whether small companies, startups, you know, growing into that space or companies that are much larger nowadays, um, we can have a big impact, a very large impact with a with a little bit of effort 
to be able to implement some much more thoughtful and caring and supportive, like I said, policies and and services and uh, information to be able to kind of go through the process. Because one of the other things is like it's not just it's not just the grieving person who's dealing with your company; it's the grieving person who's dealing with your company and their company and that company and the other one. And and so there's there's you know fifteen thousand things going on at the same time for the for the next of kin or the folks that are dealing with it, and you're trying to keep all of these you know, states of all of the different processes, you know, in mind and figuring out where you are with each of them. Are these closed? Is that closed? It's very, very overwhelming. So you're grieving, but you're also dealing with all of these different things at the same time. So, you know, having a company create a really streamlined process, having all these companies create really streamlined processes would just be amazing. I, I agree. Thank you for this conversation. And Megan, thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. It's great to be here with you. Thanks so much for talking about it. Yeah. Listeners, to see more of Megan's work, check out meganlyip.com. That's Y-I-P.com. Now it's that time, my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll kick it off. Got a very high level example here, but I'm just really feeling the power of preschool this week. So I think preschool is a great design. I I know not every kid gets to use it. I hope that we as a society can make it so it's available to everyone. But so my daughter, Rafi, started preschool a couple of weeks ago and um, she's loving it. She's just like, she's a very social child. And I definitely think that she was sort of bouncing off the walls during COVID. And I mean, when we drop her off for preschool, her and these two girls, they like run towards each other and have like a a triangular hug every day. They're like so happy to be together. Now there's this app, um, it's called like Class Dojo. And so I get pictures of my kid playing and I'm just like, this is so great. So like right after like a year and a half, almost two years of these children like being at home, it's just, it feels so good to send my kid to preschool and just just excited for her and grateful that preschool exists. So here's to the, I guess, preschool teachers out there. They're doing a great job. All right, Lisa, what about you? You know, since I haven't been getting out much these days, but Amazon's coming and I am an addict for books. I collect books the way my husband collects woodworking tools. So between the two of us, we got a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, and so uh, I have two actually because I was gonna give one. I was gonna use one as my um, choice, but then the second one just showed up, just turned up, and it's very relevant to Design Museum because the foreword is by Debbie Millman, and I'll tell you which oh, one nice. that is in a second. <laughs> Um, So the first one is this book called Navigating the Code, How Revolutionary Technology Transformed the Patient-Physician Journey by Barry P. Chaikin. I think I pronounced that right. And the reason that this is um, my choice is, well, kind of obvious because it's really important for me to stay up to date on what's happening in the healthcare space. And when someone publishes a fantastic guide book to kind of gives you... um, you know, a look at how revolutionary technology transformed the patient physician journey, then I'm all in. (laughs) This is going to help me every single day. That being said, one of the risks of 
focusing on one particular vertical, one industry, is that you could potentially get a little stale and maybe regurgitate the problems that are already in the industry and not be transformative and not um, really focus on, uh, you know, improving things through design. So that being said, I also zoom out a lot and I spend a lot of time looking around at other places for more inspiration to get um, broader ideas and innovations, stay informed and open. So my second one is the Fast Company Innovation by Design book literally just showed up, uh, just got released. Creative ideas that transform the way we live and work. And as I said, the foreword is by Debbie Millman, who we just hung out with on uh, on Design Night Live. So very exciting. So I just got that and I've been leafing through it. What I love about this is that, you know, it's just, it's a wide variety. It's not just technology. It's not just industrial design. It's a wide variety, graphic design, um, architecture, furniture design, algorithms. It's, it, it runs the gamut. So it's very inspiring. Thank you. That was awesome. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, could be a book, could be anything, share it with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano and I'll share it on the podcast. Lisa, this was so fun. Thank you so much for bringing this important topic to us and to the world. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for giving space for the topic. I really appreciate it. That's our show. Again, I want to thank Lisa DeBettencourt and Megan Yip for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources and articles we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. You can always find us on social media where you hear the latest from Design Museum. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And we have an email newsletter that comes out once a week. So you can sign up for that on our website and hear from us and hear about the latest from the museum. By the way, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Design is Everywhere, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your ratings, your reviews, your comments, they really help us reach more people so we can keep chatting about the transformative power of design each week. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. The whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you so much for being here and we'll talk again next week.